Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Christopher Ryan, your host, coming to you from my little office in Barcelona, Spain. I'm standing in the spot right now where I wrote Sex at Dawn uh, while Cassie was away at work every day. It's this little office that my buddy Viram and I built on the terrace. Um... Viram, who is in uh, two episodes of this podcast. So if you want to hear Viram's story, the amazing story of walking with a donkey through Pakistani landslides, uh, check out the archives for Viram, V-I-R-A-M. Anyway, he came and visited us and um, was kind enough to, well, I was going to say help me build this office, but really I helped him build the office. It's it's like a little wooden cabin plucked out of the forest and set down on an urban terrace in Barcelona, Spain. Anyway, while we were gone uh, on the west coast of the U.S., it there was a, a leak in the roof and it sort of rotted the wood. And when we got back, we realized the whole roof had to be replaced. So now that I'm older and a best-selling author, I hired a guy to do it rather than doing it myself. Um, actually, the true reason is that Veram wasn't available and I don't have any other friends as talented as him and I'm not ready to lead the project. So anyway, it just got finished yesterday and uh, rained last night and everything seems to be dry. So it's sort of a historic moment for me to be back in this little office with so many memories. Yes, there's a hammock strung right across the office is just big enough to string a hammock across. That'll give you a sense of what it's like. Anyway, this episode, I've been sitting on this one for a long time. I recorded this shortly before leaving Portland, uh, which would have been, what, November, I guess. It was getting dark, it was rainy, and um, I uh, was very lucky to be able to spend a couple of hours in the company of an author named Tom Spanbauer. He's published many books uh, of his own, and he's shepherded many more uh, to publication. He is a legendary writing teacher in Portland. I started hearing about him within days of arriving in the city. People started telling me, oh, you should really meet this guy, Tom Spanbauer. Tom Spanbauer is amazing. Tom Spanbauer has a writing group called Dangerous Writers. You should really check it out. I probably heard that from five or six different people within a week or so. And they were right. He is a very thoughtful, kind-hearted, um, funny, insightful man, as as you'll hear. This is a very special episode. Um, you know, I didn't... I, I've been sitting on it for a while because... Uh, shortly after recording it, we moved and left and went to L.A. and all this chaos. And then we were in Asia and all that. And I couldn't really remember what we had spoken about. 
And so I wanted to go back and listen to it again before releasing it um, because I didn't know if there were long sections I'd have to edit out, if there was a lot of, you know, coughing or phones ringing or or whatever it was. Um, And because I often I'll record, it'll just be one file and this was four files. So I knew there was some sort of disruption. And so it was going to take me time. And so I just kept, you know, leaving it on the back burner and throwing up something more recent. And, uh, but then this morning I went back and listened to it. And yes, it's in four, it's in four sections. The first is because someone, the phone rang and Tom interrupted to go see who was on the phone. But then the others were because in the midst of our conversations, there was a piece of poetry that he wanted to read, and he just sort of unclipped the microphone and got up and went off and found the book somewhere and came back. And then we, you know, hooked him up again and, I, you know, started the recording again. And then, you know, something else, you know, oh, wait, I want to read this. And he unhooked and got up and walked away. He's, he uh, is not a slave to the microphone. So it turns out that there was no, there was no major disruption in terms of... Uh, you know, that was going to require a lot of editing. It was just that we were having an animated conversation in his house. So he had access to the things that he wanted to read. And like any, anyone who really respects good writing, he wanted, it was much better to get up and read it than it is to just sort of approximate it from memory. So in any event, that's why I've been sitting on this for so long. Uh, now that I've spent the morning listening to it, uh, I'm so happy to be able to bring this to you. And and I am reminded of how touched I felt that he took the time to sit down with me and in, invite me into his private space and share some extremely poignant and private moments with us. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. I say that all the time and I mean it all the time. Uh, thank you to everybody for your Amazon support. Um, if you're new to the podcast, a great way to support this podcast and others is by going through uh, the link on chrisryanphd.com. If you click on that Amazon link and then bookmark it, and then use that bookmark to go to Amazon. Anything you buy there between four and nine percent of your of what you spend will go to support the podcast. It doesn't raise the prices of anything. It just takes the money from Amazon's profit margin and sends some of it our way, which is a great way to support the podcast if you don't have a lot of extra money and you do have an account at Amazon. If you don't do this for me, do it for somebody because otherwise it's just money you're leaving on the table. So it's a very cool way to sort of maximize your consumer dollars. I'm leaving in a couple of days for Gran Canaria, where I'll be in seclusion. Uh, I've mentioned this before. I've rented a house on the slopes of a volcano up there with no internet, no phone connectivity. It's going to be a pretty rustic month or two. And I'm going to be up there working on Civilized to Death, beating that into submission. And uh, I won't come back to civilization until it's done, which seems kind of appropriate in some ways. But I will be releasing podcasts from up there. I'm sure there's a cafe or a library or something where I can use their internet. So you'll be hearing from me on the podcast, but you won't be seeing a lot of me on Twitter or Instagram or other social media for a while. 
I hope you're doing well. Hope everybody's happy and having a good time, whether it's summer or winter, wherever you are in the north or the south. Love each other. Love yourself. And I'll catch you next week. I'm going to play you out with a strange little song about being what you need to be, fulfilling your destiny. This is called I Wish I Was a Little Cowboy by S.E. Rogie. When I was a boy, my mother once asked me what I would wish to be. I told her mother the man I would like to be is that type you might hate to see. I would love to be a red old cowboy, roaming with my guitar all day. With the prettiest women around me Singing my radio cowboy song Oh, yippee-yay, yippee-yay, yeah A cowboy I would love to die But my mommy got annoyed She scolded me Well, what else can I do? But sing, yeah, yippee-yay, yeah a cowboy I would love to be My mommy sat down crying My daddy also sat down looking never so blue Then he said, so honey, bothered you cannot do You'd better try to be somebody else I said I'd rather be a real cowboy Than any great somebody else With my guitar and the women around me Singing my real cowboy song Oh, yippee-yay, yippee-yay, yeah A cowboy I would love to die But my daddy got annoyed he scolded me Well, what else can I do? Oh, sing, yeah, yippee, yeah, yeah A cowboy I would love to be I sat down one morning Listening to my daddy and my mommy scolding me when someone handed me a letter from somewhere Asking me to have a cowboy show They offered thousands of dollars outright This makes my heavy heart so light For now my parents soon became different And now they joined me in singing my song Oh yippee yippee a cowboy I would love to die Well now so happy was my mommy And my daddy so gay As they sing this chorus with me Oh sing yeah, yippee, yeah, yeah A cowboy me love to die How, how did you hear about dangerous writing? Uh, let's see. I heard about it from probably the first time was from uh, Andy Gurevich oh, and yeah. Uh, Celeste. Oh yeah. 
And uh, when, shortly after I got to Portland, uh-huh. I started to hear about you as a legendary writing teacher mm-hmm. and uh, that you'd had, you know, lots of uh, interesting people had gone through your program. Yeah. And that yeah. You, yeah. So then I went to a reading um, that you did, well, you and, and your, your group did at a bar not far from here, a gay bar. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I forget what it's called. Um, crush. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Right. So that was really interesting. Yeah. I really enjoyed yeah. that. Some of the readings were fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so I, I kept thinking I wanted to get together and, and at least meet you and hopefully have you on the podcast if that was if you were willing. Yeah. Um, but like so many things, I let it wait until the, yeah. you know, my time started running out. Yeah. And then it's yeah. like, ah, I got to call. Okay. Anyway, I'm here with Tom Spanbauer in his uh, office is this where you write? Are we sitting I, at your I, writing table? No, I write over there in that corner there. Oh, okay. There's, yeah. the, there's the computer. This is where I do the business, actually, and just stack my shit, you know? Yeah. Can I say shit? You can say whatever you okay. want. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> stack your shit. Everyone needs a place to stack their shit. Yeah, there's a, wasn't there a George Carlin record called A Place for My Shit? Oh, yes, yeah. there was. I, I just love that guy. Yeah. And I try to, always try to... Uh, to conjure up my inner George, uh, <laughs> because he's so pissed off and so right on, you know? Yeah. He's just so different from I am. I just wish I could just be that angry. Really? Why, why would you want to be that angry? I don't know. I just, it's just, um, well, I'm, I'm, um, 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 it's just an, it's just like the other, the otherness of it. Yeah. He's just so, so spot on, so eloquent, and so kind of um, powerfully angry that he can nail something. Yeah. I, you know, I'm. There's a expression in French, les, les, l'esprit de l'escalier, which means it's not you. You've left the party and you're on the staircase, and then you remember. Oh yeah. What what you should have said. Yeah. So that's I'm kind of that way. Well, is and is that. One of the things that makes people want to write, do you think, that having that opportunity to get it right? I guess for me it is. Uh, there's a way I, I say to, about myself is that the reason that I write is because I can't speak and cry at the same time. That's and a good line. It, it's, just, it's just there's a way of... of, uh, of um, um, Going to that place inside of me and trying to to resurrect old stuff or or hurt stuff or or stuff that I've forgotten about that's that's troubling me, you know. That uh, so uh, and I feel that's important uh, for my um, for my health and and for you know it's, it's um, again um, the Dalai Lama said. Um, um, when you meet someone, look them in the eye, and you look them in the eye, be kind, because within each one of us there's a great battle waging. And so there's a great battle waging inside of me, and a great battle waging inside of you, and we're all kind of in that, in that human situation. So uh, I figure by talking about the battle that's waging inside of me, so it's one way to, uh, to address the human issue, you know? The, the great big war that's out there, you know, yeah. by addressing it on, on, in my own little world. 
And maybe that's part of the attraction that someone like George Carlin holds as well, that he's someone you want with you in battle. Yeah, yeah, there's, absolutely. There's a fearlessness about him that, yeah. that's beautiful. Yeah. I spent a lot of time with comics um, since uh, I was mentioning earlier that my wife and I co-authored this book, Sex at Dawn, that came out five years ago. And what was it called? It's called Sex at Dawn. I should, oh, yeah. I should have brought oh. you a copy. I'll, I'll get a copy to you. I'd love to see it. Um, it's some, it seems presumptuous to show up at your house with a book for you. So oh. <laughs> if you're interested, I'll, I'll be sure to I would love to see it, yeah. It's, uh, but it's basically, it, it argues that, um, uh, that human sexuality isn't about reproduction, that over the course of evolutionary time, it's been co-opted for social functions. Uh-huh. So the reason that we have sex is normally just to establish a connection with another person uh-huh. and uh, mm-hmm. bonding and intimacy uh-huh. and so on. Therefore, uh, same-sex relationships aren't a conundrum anymore yeah, because right. sex isn't about having babies, yeah, so right. it doesn't matter. And uh, that our species' sort of default sexual behavior is a friendly, casual promiscuity. Uh-huh. And that's why we have so much trouble with culturally imposed monogamy and all right, that. Right, right. I, I um, agree with all that. That's yeah. cool. So anyway, it's it, uh, uh, Dan Savage read it. Do you know Dan Savage? Yeah, I know right. Dan Savage. So he read it and he loved it and then he shot it into the mainstream and then it became a bestseller. And next thing you know, hmm. um, I was getting contacted by all these comedians because I wrote the book in a very sort of um, casual um, funny way, uh-huh. which some people, scientists, found um, insulting. Of course. <laughs> but comedians loved, right? Yeah. So suddenly I've got all these famous comedians writing to me because there's good material in the book uh-huh. and I'm uh-huh. getting invited on their uh-huh. shows. And all uh-huh. I was on one show in LA. I'd been on this guy's show. His name's Moshe Kasher. Been on his show four or five times. And finally, I said to him one time, how come you keep inviting me back to your show? You know, what's the, so many people. He said, look, Chris, you're funny, but not too funny. <laughs> <laughs> so from uh-huh. a comedian's point of view. But anyway, I was, the whole point of that was that I've, as I've become sort of the token non-comic in the world of, of uh-huh. comics and mm-hmm. in Los Angeles, um, I've come to admire them so much for their fearlessness. Uh-huh. That's the yeah. one thing they all have in common. Yeah. They don't give a shit. Yeah. Everything is, you throw an idea out and they're just going to dig as deep into it as they can go uh-huh. in search of material. Uh-huh. Because the best comedic material is that which is true but that no one else has said before. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. There's something really beautiful and, and intrepid about that. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's so different, you know, so from the place I'm coming from. And um, I, I was raised Catholic and uh, medieval Catholic on a farm, you know, with a father who pretty much hated me because I, um, he could see immediately in me that I was gay. And he, he was so threatened by that that uh, he tried to, to, to beat that out of me. And... Um, so what happens to me is, uh, you know, be, don't be seen. It didn't be seen, but don't be heard. Don't speak. You're gonna get a, you know, you're gonna get some a smack in the face mm. if you speak at the wrong time. Yeah. And so when it comes to being in the world, I'm, a, I'm, 
I'm quiet. I'm pretty much a hermit, really. I don't really see anybody. But on the page, I'm, I'm fierce. Mm. Or can be fierce. Right. And um, every time that a book comes out, I have to go through this this feeling of of um, that I've done something terrible, that I've done something really. There's a lot wrong. of shame. Shame and and I've I've made people uncomfortable by telling the truth. Right. Um, I've told the story so many times. There's a certain point in my life when. I was a second year of college, barely a C average. It was Vietnam was going on. All of my high school friends were, I had quit school and and everybody else was Greek and I didn't want to join the fraternity. And so I just was sitting in my car studying German and reading geology and I just didn't know anybody. Or So I decided that I would buy a book very much like this that had gold leaf on the side so it was old and um, I decided to call it the truth book, and um, and I sort of, so I started writing down because nobody was like me. I thought that I would find, I'd start f saying some true things because there's no true things in the world to me. And I wrote down, Jackie Norby has big tits. <laughs> That's true. And it just was just like it was like alchemy to me that the fact that I could say that. And then I said, I think Kurt Cameron's a queer. And then I masturbated three times today. And that that was just so alchemical to me because it wasn't something inside of me. It was now outside of me, and I could close it up and carry it with me. And I, mm -hmm. had, a, I had a companion. It's, it's interesting how that sort of... Uh, a reflection of confession. Yes, it right? is. Yeah, but you're confessing to, not to a priest. No, and no, not, and not, not really to yourself either. No, no. It, it's just, I guess it's 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 just uh, something, it, it's to something, whatever it is that's higher and greater. You know. Yeah. And and I guess I must believe in that, or else I wouldn't be talking to it. Yeah. You know. So maybe it's just my Catholicness. That has, you know, in, in, you know, um, um, made me into a person that, that can't really believe in, in something not up there. I couldn't give you an, any idea what that thing is, but yeah, you know, I throw the ching, I you know, do the tarot every once in a while, stuff like that. So, I guess I, I um, I have a sense of of something else. Yeah, both of my parents were raised as Catholics yeah. and uh, through university. They went to Catholic universities. Uh -huh. And typical story, you know, my dad wanted to be a priest. Um, and and uh, uh, at some point he started having questions. When he was in college, he started really questioning whether it all made sense because um, he was intellectually awakening, and the more he awakened yeah. intellectually, yeah. The, the harder it became yeah. to square everything. And he went to one of his teachers, uh, Father Christopher, and he, he confessed to him that he was having serious doubts and didn't know if he could continue in, in the church. And uh, Father Chris said, 
you know what, I, I'm having the same doubts. I think this is uh -huh. my last year teaching here. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they uh -huh. left together. Uh -huh. And then uh, I'm named after Father oh, Chris. Wow. That's yeah. great. That's great. So there's some, you know, again, there's that beauty of confession to the truth, yeah. and no matter what it does, no matter how disruptive it yeah. is in your life. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah. Well, I can certainly see your, your admiration for George Carlin then, because he's yeah. coming from the same place, yeah. same yeah. Catholic. Same stuff. Yeah. Same stuff, yeah. Did your father, do you think your father recognized that you were gay before you did? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I have a nephew who's gay, my brother's son. And um, as a young boy, this boy was very exuberant, very smart full of imagination in an imaginative world. He'd walk up to you and say, hi, Uncle Tommy, you know, and then he'd have this whole world that he'd made up and he'd come over and see my Smurfs and, and he'd be playing with them. And, and I think I thought, this guy's gay, you know? He's gay. <laughs> He's too smart to be straight. <laughs> <laughs> He's too imaginative. He's too much fun. <laughs> and I'm sure I was the same uh, way. Yeah. And my father is just as as meat and potatoes. Uh, he was the president of the Pocatello Frontier Rodeo. And he, and also he confessed to me at, at, in his 80s that he was cornholed by his brother. So at a certain age, he was raped. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah. But um, he, he, he was bound and determined to, to, work this thing out of me or beat it out of me. Oh my. Did that include psychiatric interventions? No, not in Pocatello, in Taihee, Idaho oh, in good. the 1940s and 50s. You didn't yeah. get the electroshock like no, uh, no. Lou Reed? No, no. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a crazy world. It You know, as, as down on modernity as I get, the one thing that sort of makes me happy is seeing the radical change in the last 15 or 20 years. I know it. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. To see kids his age now who aren't going to have to go through all yeah. that hate and yeah. violence. Yeah. The only thing that troubles me about that is that they don't have, they have no context to what's been, what's happened before. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I was talking to a, a student last night who, you know, she she was a, a heroin addict at 15 in Santa Cruz, and she's out of out of all that now, and she has a young son, 15 or nine years nine years old, who's just so beautiful and innocent and and loving. He's just the best, but he has no darkness. There's yeah. no darkness, and they're wondering about. You know, that's pretty dark out there. What's what's this guy going to do, you know? Yeah. So it's hard to know, man. It's hard to know. It is hard to know. I, I mean, I think I think about those issues in terms of... Do you have children? No, no. I, I never wanted to have children. Oh, good. Um, no, I, I've always seen myself as someone just passing through. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, anything that involved any sort of declaration of permanence felt really wrong to me, whether it, you know, be buying a house or even a car. Like, I never owned a car until three years ago when uh -huh. we came to the U.S., and mm. at 50, I bought my first car. Huh. Um, 
No, I've always just been sort of like, you know, just passing through and, uh, but I was thinking what you were talking about with the lightness and darkness and all that, um, a lot of the stuff that's happening now in universities, all the microaggressions and the, you know, this, this sort of heightened sensitivity to offense. I know it, yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah. It reminds, in this book I'm working on, there's a chapter on the hygiene hypothesis. Are you familiar with that? No. Uh, the hygiene hypothesis basically states that um, we've, because we've created uh, almost sterile environments for ourselves, because mm -hmm. we've eliminated all the mm -hmm. pathogens, all the, mm -hmm. all the worms that used to infest our stomachs, mm -hmm. and you know, we don't let kids play in the dirt anymore, mm -hmm. and we have these clean antiseptics everywhere mm -hmm. and all this, mm -hmm. that what we've done then is we've left our immune systems with nothing to do. Mm -hmm. and with no uh, training on what to fight against, so the immune systems turn against us, and we end up with autoimmune disorders like asthma and mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis and all sorts of diseases that result from an imbalance. Because to use your image earlier, we all have a battle going on inside mm -hmm. us. Well, one of those battles is our immune system against things that want to come in and take uh -huh. over, uh -huh. right? right? Or even against mutating cells that could become cancer. So when, that, when we try to win that battle, we end up shooting ourselves in the foot because that battle is part of life yeah. itself. Right. Right. And so, um, for example, I have a friend who's suffering from MS, Terrible. I mean, I've seen him in the last three years go from a guy who was playing soccer every weekend to a guy who can hardly walk. Mm -hmm. And the theory is that that uh, is because he doesn't have worms in his intestines that are necessary to maintain this balance. And so his immune system is attacking his own nerve cells. If you look at MS rates around the world huh. in the tropics, almost nobody gets MS. Huh. Wow. It's only in, uh, you know, first world, clean environments. Anyway, so that's the hygiene hypothesis as applied to yeah. health. But I think it applies to psychological health. Oh, I health. do too, I do too. We have to have darkness because, you know, if that kind of fluorescent life, there's, there's no place, there's no place to hide. And, and, and because there's no place to hide, there's no place to withdraw and, and to go within, you know, it's all bright and loud and full and entertain me, right? you know, and, and uh, so I totally agree with you. Yeah, and if you're not worried about getting enough food to eat or finding a place to sleep, then you worry about whatever the fuck it is there is to worry that somebody offended yeah. you by, that energy is going to express itself one way or another. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a... Uh, I, I'm very suspicious of the whole notion of progress. I think we're progressing away from where uh -huh, we need to uh -huh, be. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But anyway, that's my rant. No, no, <laughs> I, I'm I, sorry, I, I slip into that rant very easily these days. It's okay, George. <laughs> yeah. See, it is very George Carlin. I just made a note here, actually, to, to make sure I quote George Carlin in this manuscript. I begin the manuscript. In fact, I rip off. Do you know who Louis C.K. is? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, the name of this book I'm, I'm ranting about right now is Civilized to Death, and the subtitle is Why Everything's Amazing But Nobody's Happy. Huh. which is a line from Louis C.K. Huh. Huh. Uh, you may have seen this bit where he's on an airplane and there's Wi-Fi uh -huh. and he's like, 
Yeah, and there's Wi-Fi on this airplane. I had no idea Wi-Fi on airplanes even existed. It's amazing. And I'm checking my email and I'm looking at YouTube videos. And then something happens and the stewardess says, oh, sorry, we're going to have to reset the Wi-Fi. Something went wrong. It'll be, you know, 10 minutes. And the guy next to me says, this is bullshit. (laughs) And he goes off on this whole thing like 10 minutes ago, we didn't know it existed. And now we're pissed off (laughs) that they have to reset it. And then he gives, you know, like, you know, and you're you're sitting in a chair in the sky. (laughs) It's a brilliant bit. I'll, I'll send you the link. Anyway, uh, why am I ranting about that? Oh, the hygiene hypothesis and the need for darkness. Exactly. The need for something in life that's a legitimate danger. Yeah. Because otherwise you create dangers, yeah. right? We, we, mm-hmm. We're, we're mm-hmm. jumping around scared of shadows. What kind of legitimate dangers do you have? Uh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I try to... Stay in touch with legitimate dangers by traveling. By traveling, that's yeah. good. So far in my life, that's probably been the closest. For years, I rode a motorcycle every day. Uh-huh. That kept me pretty close to uh-huh. legitimate danger. Uh-huh. Um, and, I, and I feel that absence, actually, at the moment, uh-huh. and it's one of the reasons we're leaving the U.S. Uh-huh. Because in the U.S., I feel like... I'm so far away from, um, it's, it's hard to express because it's not even that you're far away from, from danger, it's just that the culture keeps distracting you from it. Yeah, yeah. And I like being in places like, you know, Southeast Asia or mm-hmm. Latin America uh-huh. where it's right there and nobody's pretending it's yeah, not. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. I feel cleansed somehow by uh-huh. that. Yeah, it's like we live in a, the idea of a world here. That's a good way to put it. You know? Yeah. And all of us are moving so much into technology and technology and entertainment by technology and all the stuff that we do, and and Facebook that we just it just it just seems like um, it's uh, that uh, the 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 worms. The darkness, the blood, the guts, the things that that are real terrors, uh, 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 they may still exist, but really we're we're too interested in in in, uh, the technology. We are living in the technology, not not in not in life. Last night, I my. a, a car alarm went on, on off outside, and my car was out there. <clears throat> and uh, I was so busy typing, and, and I guess you don't type on. I, I shouldn't say type. I was <laughs> at the keyboard, uh-huh. and and I wanted to finish this sentence, and I couldn't find my shoes. And then I got out there, and um, some guy had broken into a car, and one woman had seen it, and she. Had, the cops can even all that stuff, and um, but you know, I, I just um, I had this this strange feeling of of being you know seventy years old, living on a corner, uh, and no um, you know, open break the window can come in. How safe am I? You know, and um, 
it's it's only as I've gotten older that I've started thinking about my own personal safety because I've always been a big guy, mm. always been able to you know work myself through it. But uh, I think with age, there's 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 a way that that um, that the danger gets more real. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's, it's yeah. really it's really palpable. It can be very palpable. And. And and it's, I mean, I'm 53, mm-hmm. so I'm, I feel that I peaked physically, maybe five or ten years ago, uh-huh. and so my experience, um, is, I feel more vulnerable physically uh-huh. than I have, you know, since I was a child. Mm-hmm. So I'm a li- I, I understand what you're saying, and I feel, for myself, when. Like when I've been traveling in, in India or in Latin America and out away, one of the things I love about it is that it brings the attention to the immediate. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I can remember, like, I don't even remember exactly the scene, but I remember the feeling of being somewhere and, and like getting out of the rain and someone gave me a, offered me a cigarette. And I remember, like, I don't even smoke cigarettes, mm-hmm. but I remember smoking the cigarette. And I remember thinking, like, cool. normally I would worry about lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Right mm-hmm. now what I'm worried about is not getting rained on. Right. And there's something so liberating about that. Yeah. To just look right in front of you. Yeah. And that's all I have to yeah. think about right yeah. now. I don't, you know, all these dangers in the distant uh-huh. future uh-huh. that, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, there's a clutteredness of our thinking. It, it, I, I know that feeling that, that you're describing, and, and it's a, it's a, it, there's a way that you feel s- that that everything is very real. There's there's a sense of of being somehow connected to to the earth or connected to the world, or so you're not fl- you're not. Flying above it, thinking about it, you're just in it. Mm. And if there's rain on your face, there's rain on the roof. You're smoking the cigarette. You're a little chilled, but you know, it's just my whole time I spent in Peace Corps in Africa was that way. Just really, yeah. but where were you in Africa? Kenya, Kenya. Oh, and what what years? Uh, Sixty-nine to seventy-one. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever read Paul Thoreau's? Uh, book about when no, he was in the Peace no, Corps. I haven't. No. Do you know who he is? The I do. Travel I know writer. him. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's he's a grumpy old bastard at this point, but um, his book, My Secret History, huh. is a beautiful book. I've I've always wanted to read that. I just you know why haven't I read it? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think you'd find because it, it starts. In church, he's an altar boy in uh-huh. Boston. Uh-huh. You know, sexual repression, the whole thing, uh-huh. and then he gets to Africa, and um, uh, he's no longer sexually repressed. We can uh-huh. put it that way. Uh-huh. But yeah, I think that's a beautiful book. His travel stuff just got so grumpy and ornery. Uh-huh. I, I stopped reading it. Uh-huh. But that and the Mosquito Coast, I think, are beautiful books. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's easy to be grumpy as a as a tourist nowadays, though. You know. Yeah. It's just so, I mean, I, I don't really want to go anywhere. Mm. Uh, you know, maybe maybe to some place like, you know, um, 
Colombia or someplace that that isn't infested by tourists, but I have AIDS, mm. and um, I have a very specific kind of diet that I have to right. stick with, and if, and now it's psych meds, you know, right. and if I get away from any of that shit, then yeah, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of. And, and you know we were talking about psych meds earlier, and I just I, I'm just wondering. I just wonder so often if if I don't make myself crazy just just to give myself something to do. You know? <laughs> well, there's the hygiene hypothesis yeah, again, it is. right? Because yeah. we do that. We want drama. We want challenge. Yeah. And here you're living in this beautiful place, a beautiful part of a beautiful city, yeah. one of the most beautiful places on the planet, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And also there's a luxury, you know, of having traveled when you were younger. Yeah. And I feel this too. Like, I, I'm not really eager to go, you know, ride a dump truck through Africa, uh -huh. you know. Yeah. Um, but the fact that I did stuff like that yeah. when I was younger yeah. makes yeah. me comfortable not doing it now. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So tell me about Kenya. What was that like? Uh, I'd like to just interject. Sure. I was just reading James Hillman, A Blue, a blue Fire. Have you ever read James Hillman? I've read uh, something by him. I think I read a thing he did with someone else called We've Had a Thousand Years of Psychotherapy and Things Are Getting Worse. Oh, I you don't know. know but, but he said that there's love, but that inside our problems there's 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 a piece of there's somehow a love a love inside our problems, mm. and so like I find that myself here <clears throat> um, that there's there's some way that that uh, this let's say for example my sleeplessness that something's getting fulfilled. There's some way that I was loved as a child that is being fulfilled by not sleeping now. Mm. And and if I could just get to that, if I could figure that out, it's one of the probably that's, and it's shit like that, that's why I write, you know, so that I can get to that point of going, oh, this is what I, I picked that up, and this is what it is, and this is why I do that. And um, I don't know how profound that sounds to you, but I really love the idea that that the problem we're having, the problems that we're having, we're having because they fits a pattern of way we were taught to love, be loved. That is interesting. It, it resonates with Jung's sense of yeah, Jung too, the yeah. shadow being yeah, the yeah. source of what we need to learn, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Need to face and Rilke talking about facing your greatest fears, and oh, that's yeah, always the yeah. way forward. Yeah, I think there's definitely some wisdom there. So, you talked about your your truth book. Yeah, was that the beginning of your writing career? It was because you know what happened is my mother found it, oh. and uh, I got home from school that night, and uh, from being a, a busboy at the Holiday Inn, and my father. The house was dark. The only refrigerator door was open. My father came out, and he was—I'd never seen him like that. And he said, "You take that thing you call a truth book and get out of this house and don't ever come back." But first, go in the bedroom and apologize to your mother. So, 
she was lying on the bed screaming, you're going to hell, you're going to hell. And then we knelt down and prayed the rosary for my soul. And while I was praying the rosary, I said to myself, why did I say those terrible things? What's wrong with me? And um, the upshot is that I moved out of the house within two weeks, which I needed to do. How 20, old were you? 22 years old. Uh -huh. And I needed to get my ass out of that crack. But still, to this day, when a book comes out, and I've said all these inconvenient, you know, unsayable things, you know, I'm almost, I can barely walk out of the room. Because mm. I'm going to be uh, banished from the world of men, I mean, banished from the world of my family. I'm going to be, you know, but that's why I do it. I do it so that I will be banished, and I get banished, and then I... You know, it's just this thing that I keep doing back and forth. You get banished to a better place. Yeah. Yeah, it finally ends up that way, yeah. yeah. It sure doesn't feel like it when it's happening. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine just published a book in which he... Um, in which he talks about his parents' sexual relationship. His mother was crippled. And he discovered as a boy that his father had a collection of cripple porn. Huh. And he told his mother. And I think he must, he was probably seven or eight at huh. the time. And so the rest of his childhood was this huge battle and hatred and resentment between his parents. And he is the one that brought it to huh. the fore. Huh. And there were all these secrets. And anyway, now he's in his mid-40s. And he's just married and had a, a child. And he published a book um, talking about uh, his own sexuality and his own challenges. And, and he's very famous. He's New York Times bestseller. Big, big, it's getting read, right? And, uh, and he talks about his parents. And uh, wow, talk about an explosion in that family. Yeah. But I admire him for the, oh, yeah. you know, the taking it that seriously. Yeah, it's yeah. it's one of the most naked books I've read. Well, I think this the, this is the, the the frontier, really, is to go to that naked place. Yeah. To go to that place where it just absolutely terrifies you. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the world where our immune systems are attacking ourselves, if we sit down and, and go to the thing that scares us the most, maybe that's the healthiest thing to do. Excuse me. Uh, the tr finding truth in, in your own nakedness as, a, right, as an right. author. And that, that, that maybe that would keep our bodies from attacking ourselves, you know? Right. Because it's, it's really a new world where, you know, nobody's ever gone before. I love, uh, read something of Heidegger, and Heidegger said that, uh, that what makes humans humans is the fact that we can disclose new worlds. Hmm. And, and that's, that to me is, is uh, uh, really cool because I, that has happened to me as I've been writing, that I can see it, it's coming, it's coming, mm. and then you can, then I hit the ball out of the park, and it's you know it's in the, and it's just it's just it's a disclosure that that 
it's it's like a conjurance. It's 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 um, um, and and the only reason that it happened was because I sat my ass down in a chair and started investigating some place inside me that was too sore to look at. Interesting. So for you, I want to get into your philosophy of writing as much as time allows and and you're willing. And um, I sat in on one of your workshops, the Tukalor workshop. Uh, And so I'm far from uh, familiar with everything, but I noticed a couple of things. Um, I noticed what you just expressed, which is um, uh, respect for difficult nakedness mm-hmm. and and that you like to return to bodily sensation a lot. You mm-hmm. want to know how things looked, how things felt, what the room was like. You, you want to keep coming back to sort of an immediacy. Mm-hmm. Which reminds me of what we were talking about earlier, smoking the cigarette, hiding right. from the rain, right. and how that that um, sort of limitation of attention, there's some profundity in that. Right. There's some cleansing or, or depth in, in keeping it simple. So now you're, at, and I, I want to get to how you got here, but where you are now is you're a very respected um, writing teacher, I guess, if that's, or mentor. Yeah. People, um, Cheryl Strayed, right, and, right. Uh, um, the guy's name I can never pronounce. Chuck, uh, Chuck Polignac. Yeah. Pa- how do you say it? Polignac. Polignac, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, lots of people have come through your program and, and made major impacts in yeah. American literature. Yeah, Cheryl wasn't in my program. Oh, she wasn't. No, oh, okay. but, but we're, we're friends. We're, yeah. we're, but Chuck was in my class. Right. right. And so if you could encapsulate what it is you're, you're trying to convey to people who, who come to you, is there, is there any, or maybe that's self de- self-defeating to even talk about it that way? Well, everybody's a little different, you know. Yeah. There's, there's style for, see if I can remember all this now. Um, there's the reporter who comes to me and all of her sentences are subject, verb, subject, verb, subject, verb. And and so the reporter has to meet the poet. Mm. And so she's got to do spend all her time doing, doing free rights and poetry, trying to get rid of the sound that she has inside of her. And the poet, the poet, and usually the poet has written some beautiful imagistic thing uh, but what you have to say to the poet is, what happens next? And, and so, so there's no one way to teach a person. Yeah. And, and really, um, for me, I, I give a, an assignment that's uh, right about a moment that after you're different. And what happens with that is, um, because people, young people, people nowadays think that, that stories outside them and that story is television. Mm-hmm. Like I was sitting before, I went on on stage um, for the um, Wordstock. I was sitting at a table, I just really had to leave because all the writers that were, were there were all having ideas. Like this one guy said, 
was writing about how my character wakes up every day in a different, um, 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 a different um, um, body in a different world, and uh, and but but they're all connected, and so and everybody was talking about hooks, talking about horizontals, talking about you know, and I I tell the story about my butcher who said asked me what I did, and I said, I'm a writer, and he says, I got something for you, double clutching. There's these cheetahs in Africa that they gestate every eight months, and sometimes uh, in, in between there, um, one of them can get fucked and, and have, have a, uh, an, an extra uh, um, generation, an addict extra generation that is now super powerful. And so there's these super powerful cheetahs that are now rampaging through Africa, killing people. And, and I just thought, you know, that's what most people think writing is. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That I know I have an idea. Yeah. Get, like, let's line the coke out. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'll wake up a different person every day, okay? Yeah. It's Kafka meets, you know, yeah, I, I love yeah. when they mix two things yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And really what it all is, is, is it's your own heart. Right. And it's, and it's the fear that you have in your heart or the sadness that you have in your heart that makes us human. And if you can go to that and look at that and talk about it, you got setting, you got character, you got motivation, you got, you got, all this, you got it. You got it all. The story's here. Hmm. So, do you think is that the media that people are so accustomed to seeing stories yeah. being enacted yeah. outside them that they're well? I, I, you know, I, I'm at a bad point in my life because, really, um, I'm 70 years old and um, trouble with psych meds and. And um, lot, a lot of changing, and so I have to be careful with my health. And um, so, w what does a, a writer do? Uh, I, I run, I run maybe three miles a day. I um, I, I fix myself food. I, I can't drink. I can't really smoke dope. Um, um, so people being around a lot of people, I they're getting drunk, and it's it's really boring. Mm. So. I've gone to films, and I've I've gone. We have a place called Movie Madness here that has every film that's ever made. I've watched every film that's ever made. <laughs> I finally had to quit going there uh -huh. because there's nothing there anymore. And so I found Netflix. I found iTunes, and I have a penchant 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 for um, um, British mysteries. And I've seen every British mystery there is to watch now, and so, uh, and and I have a um, macular degeneration. So, mm. if I'm going to write all day, am I going to sit down here and start reading? Right. So, so I need. What I do is I sit in front of the television, and that's all there is, is manipulation. Like yeah. There's there's a new uh, series on PBS called Indian Summer. And it's, you know, it's all about people, you know, 
the, the rich uh, girl goes to, back to India, she has a child and she tells everybody that she, her husband died, but the really bitchy um, lower class woman finds out that the, that the rich woman who has a child has really just left her husband and she, she betrays her and is going to you know, blackmail her. And it's just full of crap like this. That's all it is. Yeah, soap operas. Yes. Yeah, even the really good stuff, uh, Breaking Bad and uh, uh, The yeah. Sopranos, yeah. still soap opera, right, essentially, right, family right. drama. Right. Yeah. But but what happens with Sopranos and Breaking Bad is that it's that it's the characters are so good. Yeah. Yeah. That that you can you can. It doesn't ick you out after you've seen it, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, last night, uh, my wife and I rewatched um, Herzog's Encounters at the End of the World. Oh, wow. Have you seen that about Antarctica? No. Oh, mm-hmm. oh add it uh, to your list. Uh, it's it's uh, fantastic. Uh, Do you like Herzog? No. Oh. <laughs> well, then don't yeah. add it to your list. <laughs> Let me tell you about Werner Herzog. <laughs> Come close and I'll show you how terrible American life can be, how, how grotesque it can be. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, had a, I had a friend uh, <laughs> whose name was Rosa von Preinheim. He was from Germany and a filmmaker. And I was in New York and I just found out he was HIV positive. And he came to me and he said, I'd like to make a, a movie of you dying. And I said, well, uh, uh, Rosa, I don't plan to die. And he says, oh, you Americans, you have such, always have, you know, so much cheer. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I and mean, he'd still be filming me <laughs> yeah. 25 years later. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I, I really like Herzog. I, I don't yeah. agree with his uh, apocalyptic yeah. views. Um, you know, he always focuses on the struggle and the, you know, the life or death and this and that. Um, but I, I enjoy his sense of humor. Uh-huh. I think he, he knows he's hilarious. Uh-huh. And he knows he's playing a character at this uh-huh. point, you uh-huh. know. Um, but that film is, is quite interesting because, you know, he, he gets a grant from the National Science Foundation, I think, to go to Antarctica and make a film. And he says right in the beginning, he says, I told them not to expect another movie about penguins. Like, uh-huh. I'm not doing another. So he just goes down there and he makes a movie about what's he, what he finds, which is the characters who are living at this base in Antarctica, uh-huh. who are travelers, essentially. They're uh-huh. people who just traveled the uh-huh. world, uh-huh. and you know, someone they meet someone along the way who says, hey, we need a guy to work in the greenhouse at Antarctica. And they're like, yeah, okay, I can do that. And so you end up with this really, a very motley crew uh-huh. uh, down there at the bottom of the world. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, it's like a travel piece, essentially. Well, you know, I... I uh, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. But you know, after that polar, after that bear. Oh, uh, grizzly man. That, yeah, I, I just, you know, and I, I, I just, you know, I'm German. You know, <laughs> so it resonates I, I just, too deeply. I just maybe. have this. You know, <laughs> let me show you Americans how really how empty and how grotesque you all are. Yeah. 
So, yeah. yeah, we all have, you know, I don't like Woody Allen either. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Woody Allen and Werner Herzog. Imagine yeah. that dinner party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so what about writing influences? Who do you, um, you know, I'm thinking about your description of your own writing process. Uh, I, I think about someone like Joseph Conrad. Mm-hmm. Um, who's obviously very psychological. My, my, the people that I, uh, uh, them, they're all poets. Mm. The, the people that I really care about. Um, I've got, you know, I, I'll have to go get the books, right, really, but um, um, my Alexandria, um, 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 Louise Gluck, um, Rilke, mm. um, Duino are just something that I've read a, a hundred times, mm. and uh, Whitman, and um, 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 Jack Gilbert. I don't know Jack Gilbert. Oh boy, really, you gotta go get some Jack Gilbert right Jack now. Gilbert. There's no, nothing like Jack Gilbert. Is there any particular poem that you'd recommend? Uh, well, uh, I think. Something has to do with fires. That is a title of a book. That, yeah. That yeah. Okay. That, 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 he's he's often in the New Yorker. He just died, and um, really, there's there's nothing like his world. I think he's he's just wonderful. Um, and Beatty maybe. Um, and Beatty. No, not and Beatty. Um, and Carl and Carlson. Uh. Um, um, I read, um, um, but what really, I guess what it really boils down to is, um, I read poets and I read, um, um, people like Aaron Applefeld, mm-hmm. who, who wrote, um, Beyond, Beyond Desire, and, um, 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 James Hillman, um, and um, so I, I read philosophy, maybe, and Heidegger, maybe, and um, um, and, and then poetry, because really, poets are gods to me. Mm. You know, they're 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 the the people who who, who approach the real. Yeah, you know the sainthood. The, yeah, uh, using language to go beyond language. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I uh, I deconstruct poems on this podcast. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, no. yeah. And it's interesting because you know I started doing it just um, I don't remember actually why I started doing it. But it seemed apropos and. And I thought people would, you know, sort of tolerate it. And uh-huh. I got a lot of wow. response from wow. people saying, that's great, do more of that, wow. you know. Wow. I had no idea that people uh-huh. were interested in poetry uh-huh. these uh-huh. days. But I've, let's see, so far I've done some Whitman. Um, I think I did uh, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. It's uh-huh. a very short poem. Uh-huh. And uh, some excerpts from Song of Myself. And... Um, Last a couple episodes ago, I I did uh, the famous uh, Robert Frost poem, uh, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood," uh-huh. which I you know I'd read so many times, but I decided yeah, I, to do it on this podcast, uh-huh. 
And because, oh, this is why, because the guy I was interviewing is the host of a TV show, a travel TV show called The Road Less Traveled. Uh -huh. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll begin by reading this poem. Mm -hmm. So I read the poem, and as I was reading the poem into the microphone with this imagined audience, for the first time, I, I got it. Uh -huh. You know, I thought I got it before. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah, maybe it's yeah. an illusion now, but for the first time I saw how the poem is, is remembered by the culture as, I took the road less traveled by and that's made all the difference. So I'm unique, I'm eccentric, I took a risk, whatever. But when you actually read the poem, he makes a real big point of how Actually, he doesn't know which road was less traveled yeah. by because they're both covered by leaves uh -huh. and it's really impossible uh -huh. to tell which one was. Uh -huh. And he like spends three or four lines reinforcing the point that in actuality, he doesn't know which one was less uh -huh. traveled by. Uh -huh. This isn't the poem that I thought it was, but it's, it's a good one. It's called Refusing Heaven. The old women in black at early mass in winter are a problem for him. He could tell by their eyes they have seen Christ. They make the kernel of his being and the clarity around it seem meager, as though he needs girders to hold up his unusable soul. But he chooses against the Lord. He will not abandon his life. Not his childhood, not the 92 bridges across the two rivers of his youth, nor the mills along the banks where he became a young man as he worked. The mills are eaten away and eaten again by the sun and its rusting. He needs them even though they are gone to measure against. The silver is worn down to the brass underneath and is better for it. He will gauge by the smell of concrete sidewalks after night rain. He is like an old ferry dragged onto the shore, a home in its smashed grandeur, with the giant beams and joists, like a wooden ocean out of control, a beached heart, a cauldron of cooling melt. Wow. And that's called Refusing Heaven. Yeah. And maybe if you give me just another minute, I can go yeah. find another one that's even, that's as good. But if it's, I, you, you saw how I keep things, so it could be in a number of places. All right, so while Tom's off looking for another one, I'm going to read this again. Refusing heaven, the old women in black at early mass in winter are a problem for him. He could tell by their eyes they have seen Christ. They make the kernel of his being and the clarity around it seem meager as though he needs girders to hold up his unusable soul. So this is this is about someone who is refusing to give up his hard-won atheism. Continues, but he chooses against the Lord. There you go. He will not abandon his life. So his life, what was his life? His life, obviously, somewhat like Tom's, like what I was saying about my parents, is a life that began with faith 
and through painful abnegation moved away from faith. And he can't give it up now, even though he sees that these women have seen Christ. He will not abandon his life, not his childhood, not the 92 bridges across the two rivers of his youth, nor the mills along the banks where he became a young man as he worked. So here it is, the youth. This is the, his, his transition, his movement. The mills are eaten away and eaten again by the sun and its rusting. He needs them even though they are gone to measure against. That's a great line. He needs them even though they are gone to measure against. The silver is worn down to the brass underneath and is the better for it. He will gauge by the smell of concrete sidewalks after night rain. He is like an old ferry dragged onto the shore, a home in its smashed grandeur with the giant beams and joists, like a wooden ocean out of control. A bleached heart, no, a beached heart. A cauldron of cooling melt. It's called um, A Brief for the Defense, and that's from, from Re Refusing Heaven also. This is also Jack Gilbert. Yeah. Sorrow everywhere, slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving someplace else with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta, and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit <laughs> there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship, anchored late at night in the tiny port, looking over the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as the rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. Hmm. That's beautiful. Uh, what was the line about injustice? If we focus only on injustice. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know that last line there, when you talked about smoking the cigarette and the little the rain, you know? Yeah. That's the same thing with that, the oars here. Yeah. The last. Yeah, and also the, 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 where he's talking about the, the, the injustice, the, the suffering, and then he says, but the dawn, wouldn't be this beautiful if if it weren't or the Bengal tiger when reminded me of um, two poems actually that I've read on the podcast. One is uh, the grandeur of God by Gerard Manley Hopkins. Uh-huh. The yeah. world is charged with the grandeur of God. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. It will shook out like a flame. I, I can't remember the rest of it, but it's all about. The, the, the mysterious beauty of existence. And then the other one is by Robinson Jeffers, which is called The Excesses of God. And in that he talks about how, is it not by, uh, what is the phrase he uses? Something like a wild exuberance of nature that we know our God, for to be equal in need is natural. But then he talks about rainbows flung on the domes of deep seashells and, the, you know, the, uh, something about, uh, you know, the sex feeling so much better than it has to and flowers don't need to be so colorful. Everything would work if it were half this beautiful, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So the, the exuberance of it, the wastefulness of it is what's uh, so amazing to him. Yeah, I, I uh, Robertson, Robinson Jeffers. I had a student once who was just madly in love with him, and, and I read a couple poems at, at that time because of her. And I used to teach at Esalen, so oh, I right. kind of. But that's the closest really I've got to. Yeah, well, that's I, his country down yeah, there, yeah. At Esalen. Yeah, I did one workshop at Esalen, which was wonderful for my wife because she got to hang out in the baths yeah, for three days yeah, yeah. and while I sat in a room with yeah. a bunch of people wondering what I was going to talk about for 20 hours. Yeah, really. <laughs> I'm not a big workshop guy, but Esalen's beautiful. I, I used to be a big workshop guy and, and I just don't have the fucking energy for it anymore. Yeah. It's just yeah, the way we go at sentences, the way that we, we, we deconstruct things. The way that, you know, we look at adverbs, the way that we're trying to create voice, you know, characterizing the destruction of the sentence. How are we going to destroy the sentence? Gee, that sounds like something out of People magazine. What can we do with, with that, you know, cliche, that received text to make it sound like you own it? I mean, that that's that's on at the level of the sentence. That's Annie Dillard's uh, oh. wrestling with the angel. That's Annie wrestling. Dillard, the Annie Pilgrim Dillard. at Tinker Creek. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, yeah, she's I really, great. I love that. That was that. Have you ever read um, uh, Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire? I met Edward Abbey once. Not Albie. Albie. Abbey. Oh, I don't know him. Yeah, different guy. Yeah. It, 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 Desert Solitaire is very much like Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. In fact, she said when she was writing it, that was the only book that she looked to for inspiration. Oh, wow. He it, was, it's uh, called what? Uh, Desert Solitaire. He was living out in uh, Utah in the Four Corners area, Moab, in the 60s and 70s, and he had a uh, job as a fire lookout. And he just writes about the desert. What's his name? Edward Abbey. A B E E. It's 
it's poetic and, and beautiful in the same way Pilgrim at Tinker Creek is. A-B-E? A-B-E-E, I think. Edward Abbey. Okay. Yeah. Um, but it's that, I think it's, it's what you're thinking of, is where prose becomes poetry yeah. because it's so closely yeah. examined. Yeah. And yeah. I love the thing where she's sitting along the stream and she's looking at a little frog. I don't know if you remember the scene. I'll never forget it. She's looking at this little frog and she's just very still and just observing. And the frog, th- his eyes sort of get glassy and the color goes out of his skin. And then he implodes. <laughs> and she's like, what the fuck was that? And she goes and researches it and finds that there's a, like a water spider that gets under a frog and injects it with something that paralyzes it. And then it dissolves its insides. Oh, oh my God. And then when the insides are dissolved, it sucks it all in. And this frog skin just floated away, and she was She's like, not Catholic, is she? <laughs> I don't, not anymore, probably. Oh, she would have been then. Oh, what have I done? Yeah. I've killed a frog. She wrote a book about the Northwest, uh, around Oregon or Washington. Uh, uh, it's the last book of hers that I read. I read Pilgrim at Chinker Creek, and then there's a book, uh, like a memoir about yeah, growing up in yeah, Pittsburgh yeah. that was really beautiful. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, I haven't heard from her for a while. I, I, Did you know she, her? No, no. Okay. But um, she she had an article that was published in in the New York Times Book Review that I have, you know, as part of part of my little Bible of, of things to give to students. Oh, yeah, right. You know. Yeah, she's a wonderful read. writer. Yeah. What, how do you feel about Flannery O'Connor? Well. Um, um, I, I'm. I don't. I don't know really what to say because, I. I there's several ways I feel about Fran. There's the the way that I met her. Oh, you've met her. Oh no no no. Oh, as, you mean met her as work. a child, uh-huh. as as a as a student right. in the '60s that I just right. thought that she was absolutely incredible. Yeah. And um, now that I'm a mature man. Uh, uh, Looking at, at her, I I, um, I I still think that she's really strange and and wonderful. Uh, I I just uh, um, I, I it just she just kind of comes across as kind of weirdly opinionated and and southern in, in a way that <laughs> that is yeah. just gothic and yeah. doesn't really have any kind of of appeal to me. Yeah, yeah. I I was reminded of her because her short stories are so tightly constructed that they yeah. they verge onto poetry in yeah. some yeah, in well, some that's levels. True. That's true. And her somehow she stuck with Catholicism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She did. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to to ask you about, you know, since I'm privileged to have a private session with you here, is my own struggles with writing have a lot to do with ego. And, you know, when I was growing up, teachers always told me I was a good writer and, you know, you've got a voice and you should think about being a writer and all that. And I I always struggled against it because I felt like I didn't need to write. I didn't feel any compunction. And in fact, when I did write, 
Uh, and, the, and I wrote in journals and things because I was alone a lot. I traveled a lot and I was, you know, spent a lot of time sitting alone in cafes. So I wrote stuff down. But when I talk to someone like you or a lot of other people, they need to write. They say they, it's, it's a part of them. They can't exist without writing. It's like my wife. She needs to exercise. I don't need to exercise. I yeah. wish I did. Mm -hmm. I'd be in much better shape. Uh -huh. And I wish I needed to write. I'd get a lot more written, uh -huh. you know. Uh -huh. um, but I feel like a tall person who people say, you should play basketball. But I don't really, uh -huh. you know, I love watching basketball, but I don't really feel the need to get out there and play. Uh -huh. And it's the same thing with writing. I feel like it's something that I can do, but at least so far, the, the two books I've written are nonfiction. Uh -huh. So they're just like massive homework assignments. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And... Um, I think the next thing I want to do is try fiction or at least memoir, something where it doesn't involve uh, massive research. Because I'd like to find the joy in it. Do you, do you think that's possible or do you think you either feel it or you don't? Uh, well, you know, I don't know you uh, that well. I, I don't know how, how you are, who you are. Um, I like you. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, who could not like you? Uh, there, are, uh, there are some who have managed. <laughs> uh, but you said something earlier about you know you're just passing through. Yeah. I don't. I don't need to buy a house. I don't want to. I'm just. I'm not connected. And uh, it, it seems like it has a, that has a lot to do with with writing. Then too is I don't need to make a big impression on anybody. You know. I don't need to buy a house. I don't need to have a car. I don't need to make a, you know, I'm just passing through here. So that might be something to do with it. Yeah. That, that, but if you ever decided that you wanted to, uh, to put together something that you loved so dearly that you risked everything for it, uh, to put it down on the page in a way that, that, would would disclose new worlds to you and to the and to the reader. If you ever decided to do that, then I, I think that you would be a really good candidate. But you'd have to find something that that you really loved. Yeah, I I think you know when I was. Um in my 20s and 30s, I traveled around the world, and I felt like I was taking a long inhalation, and the world was just giving to me and giving and giving, and people were helping me, and I was having all these amazing experiences. And I felt like at some point, I would reach an age or just a, a natural moment in the, the narrative of life where I would begin to exhale and all this energy that I'd absorbed, that had been gifted to me, I would find ways to, to give back. Mm -hmm. And the first book, Sex of Dawn, I think was like that because I came across an idea that I felt was so important and so um, valuable because it would alleviate a lot of suffering mm -hmm. that then I had a motivation to write it. Mm -hmm. like, 
mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. now this is going to help people and I owe it because I've been living on people's sofas for my whole life and now somebody uh-huh. should live in my living room, right. you know? Right. So that was the motivation and it worked out great. And then the, the next book is sort of a continuation of some of that, those lines of thinking and, you know, book contract and all, all that stuff. It's become a business. But now that this book is done, now I want to get back to what you're talking about, which is, you know, the American Indians say, don't you know, respect the silence. You don't, you don't break the silence unless what you have to say is really worth breaking mm-hmm. the silence. Mm-hmm. So, and there's so many books in the world and so much, you know, so much fighting for people's attention that I feel there's something really arrogant about saying, hey, listen to me, even though I'm not really sure what I have to say, just listen to me because it gives me some validation. Well, you could write about uh, cheetahs in Africa (laughs) double clutching. (laughs) That's an important thing. Somebody has to tell the world about that. But do you feel, as a writing teacher, do you sometimes feel like a lot of the people who want to be writers that it's it, it's ego that it's it's well, attention uh, yeah we're all there for the attention every writer writers write because they weren't invited to the party mm. so yes that's very true but what what happens i think in the basement is um at some point or another, people go, oh, this isn't about writing. This is about awareness. Right. Yeah, it's a group therapy session in many ways. Well, in, in a lot of ways, it, 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 I, I, I've never heard it said that way before. That's kind of interesting. But, but <clears throat> what it is is, you know, in, in you know, Heidegger... Uh, just has said there are these different ages of man, and we're in the uh, man, in the in the technological age, and and um, if you're whatever age you're in, you should try and do everything that's not of that age, so that you're not just not doing what everybody's doing. Mm. And the way that we're on Facebook, the way that we're plugged into our iPhones, the way that we're plugged into our iPads, the way that we're plugged into our computers and Skype. The way that we're we're dis disassociated uh, from one another. There's a way that those people sitting down there around that table, that after a while it just hits them. Oh, this is what people do. They they sit around with each other and they they talk about things and they shoot the shit. And there's this, you know, that I did you see the one ritual? There's this woman Gigi. Then every time we said, Gigi, would you like to read? She would say yes, and, and she would pick up her glass, she'd drink, she'd put her glass back down, she said, this is the thing that comes after the thing that came, came before. She did that for four years, and then Fred across the, the table went, this is the thing that happens after, comes after the thing, and so now whenever we say, that's we all drink, you know? And so there's just there's just a strange sense of community that's built, and not that you know we're dangerous writers and you're not, but um, um, there's just a sense of 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 a deep sense I think that that we're all really struggling. You know, there are people down there struggling with with amazing things, uh, and 
and we're all just sitting there just trying to get through it. Yeah. And and um, um, and writing about it, and the writing is focused on trying to figure it out too. So everybody's watching everybody trying to figure it out, and it just creates something that's that's really pretty miraculous. Um, after sitting there for a couple of hours, um, you know what I said to to the group before I left was absolutely sincere that you're so lucky to have each other because it really writing is this solitary act but at its to really get to the place where you're talking about you do need community you do need people to tell you that's bullshit what you wrote there that's that i know you well enough to know that you're taking a cheap shot there or you're taking the easy way out dig deeper I have my father for that and my wife for that, um, but that's it, you know. And I, if I were staying in Portland, I would uh, be scratching at the windows trying to get into your group. No. Because I did see that. And that one session, one, the, the material that was being read, um, that, that writer got a lot of uh, difficult feedback. Yeah. But it was done with support and love. And it was everybody... Everybody was looking for ways to help him make it better. They weren't trying to knock him down to make uh-huh. themselves feel right, better. Right. That it's a really nice community and culture you've built there. That's that's really important because you know um, <clears throat> back um, when I was ten years old, um, <clears throat> my uh, I bailed a lot of fucking hay. <laughs> you know, twelve years. Two crops. Where were you in Oregon? Uh, Tahi, Idaho. Oh, in Idaho. And a hundred acres of hay, two times this summer. You know, hundred degree heat, covered right. in heat, and uh, covered in dust. And then we'd have to haul the 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 the, the hay bales in to stack them. And one, I was ten or eleven, and my father said, "Okay, you're going to start." Um, bucking the hay now and stacking it and uh, drive up to the Mexican house. We had a Mexican house that was about a, a house this size with maybe 10 people living in it next to the to the feedlots. And and get those two boys and 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 you know how to stack the hay and 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 so I'm 10 years old driving a truck. And I'm driving up to the Mexican house, and I know these two boys. I don't know these two boys, but I've seen them, only seen them. They're 20 years old, and they are beautiful. I'm queer, I don't know it, but these boys are beautiful. I don't know how to even speak to them. And I think, how am I going to do this? And I say to myself, I'm just going to do it like my father didn't. And so I, I pulled up, and I said, what would he do? He'd honk the horn, so I shut it off, walked up the hill, knocked on the door. Is uh, Flaco and Acho here? They came out, and I introduced myself. I'm Tom. We got back in the truck. They were so um, um, amazed that a 10-year-old was doing this truck, and I could see that they were interested. So we come to a gate, and you know one of those farm gates, how they're all... My father, he would go, open the gate. And he would know that they don't know how to open the gate, and then he'd humiliate them. Mm-hmm. 
or not knowing even how to. So I stopped the truck, opened the gate. See how you do it? You have to pull it, lift that up, pull it out of the bottom, and then it ropes through, and this is how you close it. We got through that part, and then I let them learn to, to drive in, in the fields. I'd say, just drive over to that pile of hay over there. I don't know. Clutch, first gear, who are you going to hurt? And see, so they learn to drive. And, and everything was perfect for the terrible situation that we were all in. And that's the way I look at, 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 the, at the class, the same way. You just, you just, and just don't do it like Dad did it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thank you to everybody who supports the podcast through patreon.com or fundwhatyoulove.com, on either of which you can decide how much you want to give the podcast, a buck a month, five bucks a month, 10 bucks a month, or you can get completely crazy and give 20 bucks a month or more. Or you can give nothing. If you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Other people are covering your load, so you're going to be good. Just enjoy the podcast and tell your friends. The other way you can support the podcast is if you buy shit through amazon.com or you know someone who does please direct them through the link on my page chrisryanphd.com you click on that baby once bookmark the landing page on amazon and then eight to ten percent of whatever you spend will come to support the podcast at no extra cost to you or your loved ones thank you to basin and range for that opening music at the beginning of the podcast very funky little tune there uh, called The Bright Side of the Sun, I believe. You can find out more about them at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast with other listeners, a good place to do that is on Reddit. Just search Tangentially Speaking, all one word. There's a community of a couple hundred people in there chatting about the episodes. I drop in occasionally and say hello, answer questions, whatever. Uh, thanks to Shore Design T-shirts. Our garage is full of them. My mom has them all organized as only she can. Julie, thank you to Julie, my mom. She'll send those T-shirts out to you if you order them. Everything we've got in stock is from Shore Design T-shirts in Thailand. And you can check out their webpage as well for other designs. Thank you to Carsey Blanton. You can find out more about Carsey Blanton at CarseyBlanton.com. C-A-R-S-I-E-B-L. A-N-T-O-N.com. She wrote and performed the song you're about to hear, which is called Smoke Alarm. And it's a reminder to carpe fucking diem while you still can, because, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to die one day. Here's to you, Bennett. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Stone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 